how does the, uh, the message of the Bible and how does the, particularly one sermon that Jesus preached, in fact, it's the first sermon recorded by, the gospel, by Matthew, the gospel writer, how does it shape us today? It's interesting, isn't it? When we think about that, we think about Jesus, uh, and I don't know what your immediate thoughts are when it comes to the idea of Jesus. It might be uh, some sort of white sort of gown over a blue gown and uh, sort of um, blow-dried hair, the kind of classic sort of Sunday school picture book kind of idea. The reality was that Jesus was described in so many ways as in lots of ways unappealing. He was just an ordinary looking rabbi, peasant, preacher. And yet he engaged with the breadth of society. He worked with a group of disciples who after his death continued to spread the message. But when we see the way he engaged, one of the things that we see repeatedly is that he spoke in a way which was mind-blowing to people. It had an authority. It spoke in a way which was unlike anything that they had ever heard before. Now, if we take that idea of Jesus and then we look at what the Bible describes in the nature of Jesus as part of the Trinity, the living God in three persons, this is the claim that this sermon makes for us today. If Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father, united by the Holy Spirit, who is also present with us, then the words that he spoke 2,000 years ago can speak to us today with the same authority, with the same challenge, with the same timeless perspectives. That, let's qualify what that means. You and I are not sat on a mountainside speaking to, listening to Jesus speak in uh, basically an agrarian uh, fishing and agricultural context. We are a million light years away from that. You know, many of us have walked in here with some sort of electronic device that would allow us to speak to somebody wirelessly on the other side of the the planet and probably even see them uh, by camera at the same time. The people who heard Jesus would would not even be able, able to conceive of the idea of the world being like that. Yet, at the same time, The message of Jesus comes to us today by the power of the Holy Spirit because of the uniqueness of the character and person of Jesus and speaks with an authority today, relevance today. What our job is today is to listen to those words and to work it through and to pick out what is going on here. What is the underlying message? A lot of the things that Jesus says carry... Uh, descriptions and illustrations that are a long way away from us. But that doesn't mean that the message isn't relevant. It means that we've got to work out what does it do for us today. 
One of the things that Jesus has been dealing with in this chapter, Matthew chapter 5, he starts off by saying, this is what it is to be blessed of God. And he goes through a series, it's called the Beatitudes by many people, blessed is, blessed is, blessed is. If we look at the structure of that, that what that is actually saying, timelessly, people who are blessed by God are this kind of person. They are the spiritually broken. They are those who know that they have no uh, standing before him. And they are those who rely and trust on him. That's, if you like, the character of the Beatitudes. The blessed by God is that kind of person. In other words, that was what it meant back then. And it still means the same today. It means that to be a follower of Jesus is to recognize that we are spiritually broken, we are unworthy, and yet at the same time, in our brokenness, we can come to Him and rely on Him. That's what we do when we trust in Jesus. And then He says, now those who are this kind of person need to live like this, a a pattern of life which is way in excess of the righteousness of the spiritual and righteous elite of the day, the Pharisees. That's what Jesus says. Now, those of us who perhaps are kind of plugged in to what Jesus is saying, initially that sounds mind-blowing because the, the, the Pharisees were known as being absolutely committed to working out in every detail they possibly could how to keep the law. And then Jesus spends, well, I was about to say Jesus spends the first chapter. Well, actually, Jesus didn't sort out chapters. That's a later invention. But the first part of his message is all about the way, primarily, that we work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus is expressed in how we work out our relationships with each other. One of the things that he says, we see the pattern that this works out. Relationships, relationship with each other is one of the social sciences, behavioral science at the moment, a lot of work is being done, trying to work out, if you imagine, our world has a perspective which is that we have, for many, although it is in decline, it is in decline, for many the idea is that we have evolved. Therefore, we have a big question, don't we? If we have evolved, what is it that makes us uniquely human? What, what is special about us? Increasingly, behavioral science and social sciences are saying it is. The essence of humanity is found in relationships. We find that in the kind of hope ideas of the social sciences. At the same time, we see that kind of spread out right across the world. Relationship is absolutely key. How we work it out, our, our need for it. There's a recent uh, news report on Chicago gang, gang membership. <laughs> That's a million miles away from the kind of hope-filled social sciences of the, the joy and hope of, of relationships being the foundation. It's a million miles away from that. And yet it says exactly the same thing. Why does gang membership flourish? Because a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, and a sense of relationship. A sense of being. 
in relationship to others. A sense of being needed, a sense of providing need for others, and a sense of identity. We find our identity in amongst our relationships. You might say, well, actually, I've been hurt so many times, I just keep away from all of that. And and, and the reality is that we are still kind of pointing to relationship as being key. Because we're saying, I'm going to protect myself from this massively important thing. But if somebody came along and extended perfect relationship to you, every one of us would grasp it straight away. Because it's part of our identity. Jesus is opening up, if you like, his preparation for us to understand him by saying that relationships are an essential aspect of how we work out what it is to be a follower of him. We've seen that over the past few weeks. If you haven't been able to uh, uh, be along here on a Sunday afternoon, download them, you can catch up. We come to this section now uh, from verse 38 onwards. And we find this, if we've been talking already about relationships in terms of families, relationships in terms of the people that we love, relationships in terms of our sexual activity, that's where we've gone up to now. Jesus now moves on to another kind of relationship, a relationship with our enemies. Revenge is equally one of the foundational, natural, human responses. Revenge. You probably have gathered that I kind of keep an eye on uh, Ross Kemp's journey around the world, looking at different um, cultures and issues and challenges. Uh, I think the last one, he was in Lebanon. Wow. Literally, across the street from each other, Two sniper posts. He went into each sniper post, looked through the, through the little uh, hole in the wall, and literally looked into the room that a few hours before he had been in. Looking across at the opportunity to take pot shots at each other. He asked the question, what, what would happen if the uh, Syrian regime toppled? And the response was, and this is in Lebanon, this isn't Syria, in Lebanon. And the, the immediate response was, if that happens, we would be in there and we would kill every one of them. There would be bloodshed within 20 minutes. That actually is not a surprising response to us, is it? We know that that is the world that we live in. We see that. One of the ways that we express relationships is by saying, I am part of this and I am not part of this. I belong to this and they are my enemies. Don't be surprised, therefore, if Jesus comes along and says, I am going to turn over, subvert your natural understanding of how to relate to your enemies. I'm going to come along and and challenge that view. That destabilizes every single one of us. You, I hope, (laughs) you haven't got a sniper post, 
in your, uh, in your house overlooking the next door neighbors, but you know that the reality is that we have a tendency to belong to one and not belong to another. Whether it's in the street, whether it's in the office, whether it's in our relationships, they are all expressions of this pattern of human existence. And Jesus comes along and says, right now, let's consider this. Look at what he says. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What we've seen over these past few weeks is and Jesus follows exactly the same pattern as he says. Now let's have a look at what we've already established, what God has already said. There is a pattern of living. Let's have a look at the Old Testament law. He does the same here. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. What does that mean? It means that what God has done in the past is he has established a pattern of justice which is based on the idea of reparation, parity. He has introduced a massive concept to the human race in the past. In the past, the response was, I tell you, if you... In fact, we even read it in Genesis chapter 5, I think it is, with Lamech's behavior... Lamech's response is this, and this does not sound far removed from our own pattern of living as we see life around us. It works like this. If you do anything to me, I'm going to make sure that my response is bigger than your response to me. Lamech boasts about the idea of killing people because they have basically dissed him. You've spoken to me in a shocking way, and my response is, I'm going to kill you. That's Lamech's pattern of living. And, and God breaks into this world, and he says, now, that's the way you've been living, but let me subdue that. Let me calm you. An eye for an eye. Make it proportionate. A tooth for a tooth. Make it balanced. And Jesus comes along, and he says, I know that you've lived like that, but I'm going to take that idea and I'm going to show you what was really going on. What was under the skin. You know, we said earlier that the Word of God and what Jesus said is timeless. What God had said previously was timeless for these people as well. They just hadn't dug under the surface. They'd said, great, fantastic, we can keep that. We can make it an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That makes me feel balanced and I can, you know, I can make sure that I get my eye or I get my tooth. <laughs> Do anything, I'm going to get you. And Jesus says, now, look at this completely different way of thinking. If anybody slaps you, then turn the other cheek. What's go- what is Jesus saying? Well, there's been many occasions when that has been misapplied, 
You know, that all sorts of strange patterns of behavior that have emerged. What Jesus is basically saying is this. If somebody's response to you is one of violence, giving you a crack, verbally, attitude-wise, response-wise, this is how you are to behave. You are to respond to that with friendship. That's what it means. Respond with friendship. In other words, if we were using, the, if we were kind of trying to describe this, this in, in, in our way of, our cultural way, somebody speaks offensively to you, stretch out your right hand and offer a handshake. Because that's what turning the other cheek was for the people of the day. Jesus is just growing the response to an impossible escalation. He says, somebody strikes you on one cheek, offer the other cheek, because the response, the pattern of greeting was a kiss on each cheek. It was a friendship gesture. And Jesus is saying the right and the proper response is to behave in this way. In other words... That was a calming pattern for the past. Now I want you to extend that even further. I want you to extend friendship to enemies. That's that's confronting, isn't it, actually? That's the kind of response that hits us right between the eyes. We don't feel comfortable with that. And yet, imagine if we all responded in that way. That's how Jesus is calling us to live. He's crushing the idea of revenge. You do that, I'm going I'm to get you back. That's... Even if I get you back equally, <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be calm. Jesus then moves it on even further. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Your attitude is critically based on your relationship with your Father. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, pray for those who who persecute you, no full stop. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. In other words, my pattern of behavior is an expression of who I am. Do you remember we said that right at the very beginning? My pattern of behavior is an expression of who I am. I am a, I'm a child I'm a son or a daughter of my Father in heaven, and therefore my pattern of behavior responds outwards towards my enemies in that way. Why? Why? Because that's how God is. 
That's precisely how God is. He extends out friendship to his enemies. What he does. We see it in the coming of Jesus. Into a world which has rebelled against him, Jesus breaks in with friendship. Gentleness, response, kindness, goodness. He comes along and he heals those who have rebelled against him. He comes along and brings to life those who have rebelled against him. In other words, that relationship that he had with his father and the expression of friendship is how we ought to live. Again, that is so remarkably challenging, isn't it? 2002, a guy in Liverpool called Paul Connolly uh, was stabbed to death by two drugged-up men. His mum and dad actually, turns out, were Christians. Uh, but it was a completely unprovoked attack. They were on an absolute high, got off the bus, and they stabbed him. Since then, his mother, Lynn, particularly, has been going into prisons and has been just talking about the emotional pain. (laughs) I'm trying to find a word which is adequate. Nothing's adequate. The, The trauma, the emotional trauma, and yet reaching out to those who have caused the most appalling pain to others. She has on many occasions tried to go in and to meet with those who killed her son. It's a remarkable response. It was a story that appeared in the, on, in the newspaper uh, a few months ago. What's interesting is how we, and you can see this, how people have responded to Lynn's pattern of behavior. Somebody has written this. I do find this sort of thing extremely annoying Anger and the need for retribution in response to great harm and injustice is every bit as normal as love, empathy, sympathy, and all the other emotions that normal humans feel. We readily condemn those who are incapable of empathy. We call them psychopathic, yet the lack of anger is seen for some absurd reason as something noble. It's not. It's severely misguided. It has been used to deny victims their natural right to justice for the past 60 years. If you're incapable of feeling anger, you are just as damaged as the psychopath, in my opinion. I think that is a fantastically honest response in one sense. Because it just it puts at the finger on the very dilemma that Jesus is presenting us with. We have a dilemma. What do I do about this problem of justice and at the same time, compassion and love for my enemy? How do I hold those two things together? What do I do with that? Does it mean that I can just brush everything under the carpet as though it didn't happen? Does it mean that somebody can do whatever they want to me and, and anger isn't appropriate? What a complex, challenging difficulty we have. In a sense, it pinpoints, again, I think, our problem. That we are stuck, aren't we? How do I do that? 
How do I approach, how do I respond in a way which expresses what Jesus is saying, love to my enemies, and at the same time doesn't mean that we can just allow terrible things to go on? I mentioned it a few months ago, a guy called Miroslav Volf, he's a, a theologian, he's from Serbia, grew up in the former Yugoslavia, he saw all sorts of terrible atrocities as he was growing up. One of the things that he realized was this. For any progress possibly to be made, forgiveness is an essential dimension. Forgiveness is essential. It is impossible to move forward until forgiveness is established. And for that to be achieved... There needs to be the separation of the deed and the doer. There is the shocking, horrendous deed, and there is the person. And Wolf recognizes we need to separate those two out the separation of doer and deed. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. Look at how God behaves in this. He causes his son to to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's how God responds. And yet what we see in the unfolding message of Jesus is that God creates, in a sense, this separation. He allows His goodness to pour out on both, but He does not forget. He does not forget. He creates the separation. He pours out His his mercy on both those who are guilty and those who are innocent. He, He pours out. The sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. But he does not forget. And justice is done. And what Miroslav Volf recognized, what he understood is this. The only hope for resolution in our relationships is when we understand that we can forgive and, and realize that if that is not reciprocated, it is not forgotten by God. I can, I can let go because it's not forgotten. That's what Volv recognized. The message of the gospel is this. That everything, every injustice is going to be dealt with. Every injustice will be dealt with. God will pour out His righteous justice, His sentence of judgment on every evil thing. He will. Everything that you have done, everything that I have done, that is evil towards another person, God will deal with it. Every one of us in this room, God is going to deal with our injustice. He's going to judge And he's going to do it in one of two ways. He is either 
going to judge his son in my place, or he is going to judge me if I am not repentant. You see that? So somebody who I have offended, who knows the spirit of Jesus in them, is able to say, I can let go of that because it's either dealt with at the cross or it is dealt with one day when Jesus judges Paul Howell. One way or the other. That's why I need this message of forgiveness. That's why I need this message of justice. It is the only possible response that can bring any hope of resolution. Because revenge is our natural pattern, and yet revenge will always result in escalation. And nor is being this sort of doormat that everybody walks over. That is, not the resp- that is no answer either. You know, it is not a loving thing to allow somebody to just continually abuse other people. That is not a loving thing. It is a loving thing to stop them. But I can forgive them as well because that's what Jesus has done with me. You see that? Now, as we come to the conclusion of this chapter, what we've been working over these past few weeks is this dilemma. On the one hand, we see that that Jesus continually escalates the law and he says, you think the law says this, You think it's reachable? Now let me just multiply it to a point where it is not reachable. You can never achieve it. You can never do this, he says. And then what we find is precisely what Jesus uh, has said is impossible. He then demands that we do. (laughs) Isn't that? I'm lost. Look at what he says. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Well, that's a continuation of what we've just been saying, isn't it? It's no big thing to love people who love you. It's no big deal. It's a big deal to love people who don't love you. Not even the tax collectors are not even the tax collectors doing that. In other words, the tax collectors were this, um, this bunch who were, who were given permission by the Romans to gather taxes, uh, and they were basically gangsters of the day. Well, inevitably, they expressed love. They, they did express love. To who? To other gangsters. You know, we, we, we're in this kind of group together. We're in this, this, exactly what we've said. We're in this gang. We hate everybody else, but we love everybody in our gang. And Jesus says, aren't they doing that? That's no big deal to love people who love you. If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? <laughs> Ride a bike, as you know. And um, there's a whole load of newspaper animosity right at the moment between motorists and cyclists going on all over the place. And so cyclists are this little band, you know, we're together. And every cyclist, hi, you're all right, you know, we're in this gang together. See a cyclist riding down the other side and you, you acknowledge each other. And if somebody doesn't acknowledge you back, then, you know, you, you're not a real cyclist. You know? We're in this gang. And all, all, all the bad people are the motorists until I'm driving my car. You know, we're in this little gang together. It's no big deal just to acknowledge my own people. Don't even the pagans do that? 
Then Jesus says this, be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He says to you and to me, now, I've laid out before you the impossible. Now go and do it. That's what he says. I've laid out the impossible way of living. This is where we sit if we claim to be followers of Jesus. We sit in this dilemma. On the one hand, Jesus says, this is unachievable. And on the other hand, he says, now go and do it. That sits, it it puts the finger on precisely the challenge that we have. On the one hand, we know, we know that we cannot do it. And on the other hand, Jesus says, that is how you are to live. Do not leave thinking that because I'm loved by Jesus, I can just do anything I like. I can just, because I'm forgiven. That's the great message of the gospel. I can leave here, I'm forgiven, and I can just go away and live however I want to live because I'm always forgiven by Jesus. And Jesus says, go and be perfect. Go and live in a way which is appropriate to who you claim to be. And Jesus says, go and be perfect. And I think, I can't be perfect. I can't. I can't even be remotely good. What do we do? I think the answer lies in this. I'm going to use a cycling illustration again. I'm a cyclist. But I am no Chris Hoy. You know, I'm associated with that but I am a million miles away from it. There is a sense in which one of the things that Jesus is saying is this. You go away and you pursue living perfectly. You you follow that way of doing because the one that you are following is the one who displays it completely. You go and be that. Go and be perfect because he is perfect. See the difference? He's not being perfect. He is perfect. You go and be what he is. Go and be it. Let your light, do you remember what Jesus says? Let your light shine. Go and live as God is in Jesus. How can we do that without, because immediately... That sounds like I have got to live this life of works. How how is that? How is it different? It's like this. We can never pursue it until we've received it. Until we've received and know what grace is, we can never even pursue it. Because if we, if we stand here and we say, right, okay, that's the standard that God wants. I'm going to really work hard and I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to just commit myself to it. We've blown it. We're just pursuing works. If we understand that what God has shown to us is astounding grace, just poured out astounding grace upon us, if we are living in grace, then we can go and work our socks off to live an expression of that grace 
Somebody put it like this. I thought it was really helpful. Right, just a quick test. Breathe out. Now breathe out again. You can't, can you? Once you've breathed out and your lungs are empty, you can't breathe out anymore. You can't do anymore. The only way that you can breathe out some more is by breathing in first. It's what grace is. We can never breathe out living a life of grace until we have first breathed in grace. When we fill our lives, the lungs of our lives, with the grace that Jesus has poured out on us, we can breathe out in little ways, in tiny ways, in faltering steps, in mistakes, in failures, but not relying on what we do, relying on what He is in us. So Jesus says to you and me as we conclude this first little section on the implications of relationship, He says to you and me, go and live it out. Go and be who you are in Jesus.